Hi everyone and welcome to Long Story Short, DevX's show for the global development community. We are broadcasting this week from London. I'm Jessica Abrahams, I'm DevX's Europe editor and I'm here with UK correspondent Molly Anders. Molly is just coming to the end of an epic reporting project examining the relationship between aid and the UK media. Uh, I think it's been a year-long project comprising around 200 hours worth of interviews um, and uncovering some fascinating insights which we're going to be discussing over the next 30 minutes or so. So thanks Molly for coming to tell us about it. My pleasure, I think it's definitely the right word for it. <laughs> yeah. um, so I thought I might start by just setting the scene a bit, describing the kind of media landscape here and how it generally approaches aid, if that would be useful. So I think it's important to mention, particularly for our listeners outside of the UK, that uh, newspapers here in the UK tend to be highly partisan, unlike in some other places. Um, and some of the most popular are the right-wing tabloid newspapers. Um, so that's titles like the Daily Mail, the Sun, which are the two most popular newspapers uh, here by print and online readership. Um, and these newspapers also tend to be staunchly anti-aid. Um, so sometimes that's kind of implicit in the kind of stories that they're running, the way that they frame those stories. Um, so just to give, give you an idea of the kind of headlines that we, we, we've been seeing over the last few months, I've got a couple jotted down. Um, so this is from the Daily Mail in December. British foreign aid to the most corrupt nations rises by 10%. Uh, and just a couple of weeks ago from the same newspaper, Britain's foreign aid makes the poor dependent. We've got this from The Sun. Millions of pounds of foreign aid is spent on silly projects such as stopping Chinese workers from smoking and keeping houses in India cool. And then from the Daily Express, foreign aid scandal as taxpayers give more than £300,000 to grow coconuts in the South Pacific. So that's just a tiny taste of the kind of stories that we see frequently here um, and the way that anti-aid rhetoric is kind of embedded into the, the very way that those stories are framed. Um, but it is also often explicit in the, in the editorial positioning of the newspapers. So the Daily Express newspaper, for example, has been running a campaign to scrap the foreign aid budget entirely, um, a campaign that it says has been signed by 100,000 uh, of its readers. It argues that, I've got an extract here from the campaign, more than £13 billion of taxpayers' cash was spent on aid last year while we struggle to cope with health and social care funding at home. Hundreds of schemes are rightly assisted, but critics say that dozens more do not deserve to be propped up while we have more pressing concerns here. This newspaper says the madness of lavishing money like this overseas has to end as we launch our crusade to stop the foreign aid madness. So that's kind of the situation we have with media coverage of aid here. Um, and then at the same time, there's increasing concern about the rise of anti-aid sentiment in politics, uh, particularly, I think, on the kind of among the more right-wing factions of the leading Conservative Party. Um, so, for example, Priti Patel, the Foreign Secretary of State for International Development, uh, was vocally uh, sceptical of aid, um, as is Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's uh, tipped as a, a potential leadership candidate for the party uh, and has been supporting the Daily Express's campaign to scrap aid. Uh, and that kind of comes alongside also a concern about the fragility of support for aid among the public. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question for us and the question we've been looking at is to what extent are those two things related? How much does media coverage of aid uh, influence attitudes towards it among politicians and among the public? And what does that mean in practical terms for the aid sector? Perhaps most importantly, what can we do about it? So those are the questions Molly's been digging into. 
Um, so, should we start at the beginning, maybe, and can I ask you why you decided to start looking into this subject and how the project came about? Yeah, no, it was, um, it was a massive, massive project, and from the beginning, I think, since I arrived in the UK, I arrived three years ago uh, to cover UK aid after covering DC, or after covering USAID in DC for a year. Um, and basically, as soon as I arrived, I would go and try to speak to people about aid in the same way that I had in DC. And I found this really, really strong reticence to talk about aid really openly. There was much more concern about being off the record, on the record, about being anonymous. Um, and it didn't really occur to me why that was until you know I started seeing some of the tabloid coverage of aid. And the truth is that aid organizations are really, really fearful here of being caught up in the Daily Mail and caught up in the Express and um, the Sun. So that that actually, I, I think I did what like you're not supposed to do as a journalist, which is like turn the story onto yourself and like make your problems part of the story. But it was definitely the case. I thought it was such an interesting um, problem to have, and the fact that media coverage have, have, of aid had somehow interfered with the civil society space of discussions of aid. Um, I felt that those discussions were sort of threatened by that fear, and I think not just the fact that the the tabloids were covering aid in such a sometimes predatory way, the fact that there was so much fearfulness built in now to these charities and to their strategies in, in communication. So it has been really a source of concern for, for NGOs? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been really fascinating trying to actually cover this story because I would, um, sometimes people, you know, would be really eager to talk. Usually they would want to talk off the record or speak off the record. Um, and then whenever they were allowed to speak off the record, there was this like huge sigh of catharsis. Like, people really, really needed to talk about it and had a lot to get off their chest, both like horror stories um, in their own charities and then you know their friends who were also in charities would talk about things that had happened to them. The interesting thing as over the course of reporting it was that I would speak to somebody about sort of communication strategies for dealing with tabloid coverage and negative coverage. And over the course of reporting the story, as you said, it was a little over a year, that same charity would come under fire from a tabloid and they would come back to me and say like we can't talk about it right now like you know this is just about time and they would want to then be sort of anonymous or do that and it was interesting because it was actually them contradicting their own advice you know because the advice that other charities and, and communications theory says that you should confront it right away acknowledge wrongdoing get out in front um, you know be very very quick to address the things that are wrong in the coverage and, you know, whenever it actually did happen to a charity, they did the opposite. They completely sort of ran hiding, ran, ran and hid. Why do you think that happened? I think it is this fear of bringing down more ire from tabloids. I think it was this, this fear that they would get caught in a news cycle and that it wouldn't stop. Many charities, I would say most charities now have gotten caught up in at least one, um, whether it was like an aid sector-wide sort of allegation. Um, the campaign, for example, to end 9.7, a lot of charities got caught up in that and then were were sort of name checked uh, in the Daily Mail or in the Express, for example. Um, and they were just afraid of that happening again, basically. They felt really afraid that it was affecting um, their donorship, the people, the, the members of the UK public that were giving, but also uh, like the public sector supports of the UK government. They were afraid that they would eventually back off of funding them because they were afraid of press attention. So you think they kind of go into panic mode when they come under fire from the media? Absolutely. And there's this really, I mean, if you know, from the interviews that I've done, there's this really strange dynamic within charities at the moment between the fundraising departments, the advocacy departments, and the media and comms. Um, so, you know, each of them have their own mandate, but often the fundraising and advocacy tend to sort of approach comms much more traditionally, where there is like a defensive mode. whereas communications and media professionals tend to want to be a little more forward-facing, but tend to also get shut down then by the sort of higher-ranking individuals in advocacy and fundraising. So there's this, 
this debate that's happening both within those different wheelhouses within the charities and also generationally. So people who have been in the charity sector for much longer, for example, tend to again favour that more defensive mode. So I was interested that you said this is something you particularly noticed when you arrived in the UK. Well, he's originally from the US, you've also lived in various other countries. So do you see this as a particularly British problem? Yes, it's really, really interesting. Like I, um, when I was living in the Middle East, actually, I, I specifically researched media and democratization and how media organizations participate in democracies, how they act both as critics and um, enablers of the democratic process. And so I, I was paying attention to this anyway, I think, but when I started speaking to other journalists, I realized that it is actually a widespread problem only in the UK. I'm sure other countries have this issue as well, but I've never encountered it um, you know, in all of my sort of studies or journalism. Uh, as, as such a huge problem. And I think other journalists are really, really frustrated as well. A lot of people that I spoke with compared it with like other European governments um, and said that, you know, the UK is by and large, far and away, the most closed off, um, often the most, not necessarily like ignoring them, but trying to control information. Um, so trying to have some kind of editorial hand in the story. Uh, so I found that really strange and a little bit terrifying. And so why do you think that happens here? Why does aid take such a bashing in the UK media? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I mean, I, I think it's worth saying that it has been happening for a while, as you said. Um, you know, the right-wing press often treat foreign aid as kind of a lightning rod for political causes. Um, so as you said, they often sort of line up economic and social ills at home against mm -hmm. aid spending. And, you know, that's a really, really easy strategy as a journalist. I think that's another reason it is actually on a slow news day. You know, one of the one of the Daily Mail journalists that I spoke to <clears throat> said that on a slow news day, it's basically his routine to go through the UK aid tracker and find projects that have unusual sort of titles or might have that kind of a social element. Um, a lot of them have sort of media or cultural elements as well. And he says that those are easy targets. Um, he said the other thing that really sort of makes it easy is when another newspaper is covering something aid related that newspaper then feels pressured to cover it as well. And then you have this kind of feeding frenzy of aid, and you can imagine people in the sector like completely confused as to why suddenly there are all these attacks on aid. And it is sometimes just a matter of coincidence and competition well, between newspapers. But if it seems a kind of political issue, is it the case that these newspapers' readers are already skeptical of aid and the newspapers are just kind of feeding off that? You know, it, it's really interesting because we have seen a lot of studies that show that the UK public is very supportive of aid and very supportive of reducing poverty, for example. Um, you know, I, it isn't necessarily that people innately don't support aid. If anything, they have a fundamental belief, it seems, that does support aid. The problem is that there is this surface tension about domestic problems that is just very easy to tap mm -hmm. into. So if you compare that to aid spending, you know, dollar to dollar or pound for pound, as you might say, um, it's easy to get people riled up. And I think what's happening is not necessarily, necessarily people turning in a conscious way against aid. It's more the subconscious association with charity and with aid, with corruption, with misspending. Um, and I, I think that is, is finally starting to sink in in finally the kind of a conscious way. Hmm. Um, I, I wanted to ask as well, we, we talked about this being a year-long project. What, how, why did it take so long to, to produce and to report on this issue? It's really interesting. It's been really, really interesting. Like, as I said, so basically since I arrived, I wanted to cover this story and kind of have been covering this story kind of passively and picking up bits along the way. I think it was, it was really difficult to do, first because people were afraid to talk about it. It was really hard to get people to kind of talk on the record about the problems that they've had. Um, and I think the other problem is that it's just so complex, you know, like it ended up being a three-part series now with a video and then like with other sort of smaller elements. 
um, because there are so many moving parts, mm -hmm. and also because it's always changing. There's always a new sort of AIDS scandal in the press, and all of that is material, I think, for the piece. So actually, it was a little bit difficult to finally sort of put the brakes on and say, like, now we have to publish this, because again, there's just constantly things happening, and I think there's um, constantly sort of new research that's coming about. And it's just now, actually, that the Gates Foundation and the UK government are starting to look into specifically how tabloids are affecting UK aid um, attitudes. So the UK aid tra tracker, which I use a lot in, in the article, they're now looking at an element that's specifically for media mm. consumption and aid attitudes. So I think that should be really interesting. And again, you know, the wheel keeps turning on this story, I think. But it's kind of interesting that you say that because we are kind of currently in the middle of perhaps the biggest aid scandal to hit mainstream media in Britain for as long as I can remember. Um, and so the question that I, I want to ask, I guess, is how do you differentiate um, legitimate criticisms of the aid sector when there are failings, uh, such as the sexual misconduct revelations that are coming out now, from these attacks? I, what is the nature of these attacks? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it makes it much more complicated, I think, both from a professional perspective as like a communications official in a charity to actually defend against claims that are, in part at least, true, right? Um, and I think, you know, it's worth mentioning that all of most of the claims that you see in the tabloids have some grain of truth. There is some debate that's happening there. Um, and usually it is that debate of for-profit development, for example. Um, you hear a lot about like charity salaries. And again, it's this idea of charities making too much money. Um, so I think, I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's, it's become like such a political issue. So to start with the, the first article that you wrote, which looked at um, how, to what extent is media coverage of aid actually influencing public perceptions? What did you discover? Yeah, so it's interesting. As I said, there's not necessarily this conscious shift in belief about aid. Um, what, ha what seems to be happening is more sort of subconscious or semi-conscious that people are beginning to associate aid with fraud, um, with corruption, with political um, issues as well. Like the things that they see wrong with politics, people are now often associating with aid as well. And you could argue that that might be because charities are much closer to politicians than they used to be. Um, they are sort of often part of the political establishment, often because they rely on government funding to continue sustaining themselves. Um, so I think that was one of the main findings, actually, is that, is that people aren't necessarily uh, less charitable. They're not less generous with their money, but they are susceptible to these like, constant barrage of messages against aid. Does that affect the kind of people that the aid sector can hope to kind of bring into the crowd, bring on board with their message? That's interesting because it doesn't actually seem to be affecting that. You know, I, I think the, the number of people that are still able to be swayed to donate, for example, to become donors, is staying the same. It's about 30-40% of people who are marginally engaged uh, in aid or in news about, news about development. Um, and that percentage hasn't really changed. You know, you still have the six to seven percent that are just intransigent, who aren't going to move no matter what. And then you have also at the other end of it, the four or five percent, I think, that are just on your side no matter what you do. Um, and that hasn't necessarily changed very much. You still have that really sort of fungible um, center of UK public that could, that could move one way or the other. Um, it means that it's like kind of a delicate balance. It means you have to be very strategic. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to craft messages according to political affiliation, which I think a lot of charities are surprised by. Um, you don't necessarily need to craft it for based on gender, for example, um, or you know age group as well. You don't necessarily have to craft. The things that work tend to work for that whole 30 to 40 percent. So you said that the media messaging that the public's getting about aid is not necessarily affecting their willingness to give, but there are these kind of underlying messages that are getting through. To what extent is the aid sector itself responsible for allowing that to happen? 
Yeah, that's that's kind of the problem, and that's a harder sort of conversation to have. I think um, the people that work in charity communications and aid communications are are putting their heart uh, and soul, I think, into their work, and so I think it is really difficult to acknowledge that possibly for the last two decades we've been using images um, and messages that people find condescending, that can often be considered racist, um, that aren't necessarily accurate in how aid actually is delivered. Um, the problem is that we learned in the 60s and 70s that certain kinds of images work really well to get people to donate. They really motivate sort of that sympathy center of the brain. Um, and the problem is that there have been long-term impacts of those images. Over time, people started to become skeptical of them. Um, their understanding of what aid is sort of remained the same while aid evolved and became more, uh, more complicated. So the way that we deliver aid is, is now not just dropping sort of boxes of food or delivering humanitarian aid. It's obviously, as we know, like a much bigger spectrum than that. Um, but the way that we've been telling the story of aid hasn't necessarily tracked with that complexity. Um, so I think we've left the public behind mm. in many ways in the way that we've done communications for aid. And I think that is partly responsible for why people now resent uh, the simplicity of those messages. And that's something we've seen just recently with Comic Relief and kind of criticism that they were getting for the way that they present aid and the way that they depict Africa, particularly, and they've been forced to kind of say that they're going to change this presentation. Uh, I think it's also something we've been seeing on social media, like the Instagram account, White Saviour Barbie. Um, yes. And I guess that's a way that social media has, has come in and kind of disrupted the traditional media messaging that yeah. the has been giving. Absolutely. And we can, you know, I think we can thank social media um, and also people just getting smarter and more engaged um, for that happening. And the problem is that I think the conversation is a little one-sided. I think the public is wisening up faster than the charities mm -hmm. are figuring out how to talk to the public. I wanted to come back to what you were talking about earlier about this uh, kind of technique that often comes up in the media of comparing aid spending to domestic spending. Um, and we kind of we saw in that, in that extract from the Express campaign kind of how strong this feeling is, particularly uh, in the wake of austerity and cuts to services at home and services, you know, really are struggling, the health service and, and so on. Um, but you suggested in one of your pieces that there's kind of been a recent shift that until now it's been easy to kind of dismiss that because whatever struggles we have here, you know, it just it doesn't compare to the struggles that, that the aid sector is talking about. But has there been a, a shift in, in how this is working recently? Yeah, you're right. It has been really, really easy to dismiss. Um, and we've mostly seen charities ignoring that debate, you know, um, that comparison of, you know, what is it like a bin collection, you know, versus like a, an aid program in Papua New Guinea that's like teaching, um, you know, teaching people how to farm. Like, they'll say like, well, we're spending this much teaching somebody how to farm coconuts, you know, whereas like bin, bins aren't being collected in Yorkshire for up to two weeks or something. So it's a it's a like for like that you know we have until now sort of said just doesn't make sense you know it's it's an argument that you can't make but you know with um, the economist Angus Deaton I think published a piece in the New York Times a couple of months ago that basically said uh, for example poverty in the U S is to a point now where it is comparable to poverty overseas and in developing countries and that actually it is time to redirect some of those funds. Uh, domestically, and um, that's that's a problem because that debate has been happening, as we said in the tabloids, where it's easy to dismiss. But now, if we have actual academics and um, you know people who are a part, in some sense, of the aid community making that argument, it means that charities need to figure out how to start talking about it. Um, they have until now kind of kept their heads in the sand about that discussion about why domestic poverty is different different from international poverty. Um, and yeah, I think, it's, I think it's time to sort of figure out a strategy, I think, in the long term. So it's something now that needs to be addressed more directly. 
And it's difficult, you know, I think a lot of charity comms will have their work cut out for them because how do you make a case? You know, I think it is it is difficult and I think there are many economic cases that have been made for why charity or why poverty is so different in this context and why it's worse and how it isn't necessarily a relative matter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that argument is going to have to be made and it's, it's not going to be an easy one to make. So those are the kind of issues that we're dealing with in the media and how it affects the public. Then what's the concrete consequences of that for the aid sector and how it works and how it gets its funding? Right. So, I mean, we've seen a lot of policy shifts um, and you could argue some of them are uh, sort of directly related to tablet coverage. Others are more indirectly related. We've seen, you know, Yegno, we talked about that a lot in the video. Um, Do you want to give a quick rundown of that, actually? That's such a kind of cornerstone of this argument. Absolutely, yeah, it is. And it's a microcosm, I think, of what's happening, especially with sort of social and cultural programs overseas. They're always the first ones to get hit. Um, so Yegna was a girl band in Ethiopia, uh, and they sing about social, social justice and gender equality in Uganda. Uh, and it was broadcast initially over radio, and I think now they're over TV as well. And I think the implementing organization was Girl Effect. Um, so the Daily Mail launched a campaign in 2015 saying that Yegna was a waste of money and they nicknamed them the Ethiopian Spice Girls and basically made it sound like a pretty frivolous concept uh, in terms of helping people because again, they're playing on the public's perception of what aid should be, which is saving lives um, and you know, with a humanitarian aid sort of basis. So um, you know, after many, many articles about Yegna, uh, I think Justine Greening at the time was the Secretary of State for International Development and head of DFID. She resisted it, she ignored it, uh, and for a while that worked. And then there was a political shift, Brexit happened, uh, and Priti Patel came in, and one of the first things she did, I think it was in the first four months that she was in DFID, was to cut that project. Uh, and there wasn't really a substantive explanation for why they cut it. It had excellent reviews, uh, both by DFID and by independent uh, monitors. So it, it was a real shame, and I know a lot of people in DFID actually were really upset about that. Um, and. A lot of people in the aid community were obviously really upset about that, and I think the larger effect was that Girl Effect certainly feels, and other organizations that are doing similar work, worried that there's a cooling effect on those kinds of projects, mm. that DFID is less likely to fund a project like that because they're afraid of the media backlash. And um, when you say projects like that, what kind of things are we talking about? What are the easy targets? Yeah, so like cultural, cultural focus, um, like changing social norms, so things that require uh, broadcast media, for example, uh, awareness raising. Uh, public perception changing, those kinds of things that are very, very hard to quantify, very difficult to measure impact, and usually require really long-term timeframes um, in order to demonstrate impact. So it's something that it's really, really hard to put that value against a pound, a British pound, um, and I think those end up being yeah, first targets for the tabloids. So that's one clear way in which um, media coverage is affecting the aid sector. Are there any other ways in which this is playing out? Yes. So I mean, there's, there's quite a few that are sort of more longer term in policy issues. Um, so for example, the cross-government strategy, the UK committed to spending 30% of official development assistance in, through uh, government departments other than DFID. Uh, and that commitment, many see as a result of tabloid criticism that DFID's budget was too big, that DFID had too much power, and because of the 0.7 commitment, uh, in 2013, that its budget was much larger than it needed to be and that money was needed elsewhere. So there was this very gradual, slow push to start spending aid other places and to increase ODAbility, as it's called, so being able to spend ODA through other departments. Um, and you know, you could say that that was one element. The other one is the securitization of aid, which is also uh, a cross-government element. It was this idea that we need to be spending aid more in the national interest to protect uh, Britain, Brit Brits at home, basically. Um, so it was this idea of using aid for security. 
uh, I think the irony of that is that some of the projects that the tabloids have been criticizing lately are those securitization projects. Um, so DFID was first under pressure uh, and the UK was under pressure to spend more aid explicitly for security purposes and then were criticized for it by the tabloids again. So again, it just shows kind of the the political winds change uh, and it isn't necessarily consistent over time. Because this idea of aid in the national interest has been quite strong um, current in UK aid over the last few years. I think it's been growing. Um, and there is an idea that that is to um, kind of meet public demands, to spend aid more in a way that the public's going to be able to get on board with. Is that right, though? That's, I mean, it's interesting. Like, morally right, I think, is, is definitely a question that's happening all over the world, whether it's okay to use money in the national interest. You know, you've, you've been covering it yourself in terms of using refugee costs domestically. Um, that's certainly one area of the debate. Um, I think the other interesting thing about it is that it, is, it, it does tend to be very, very political aid in the national interest. Um, and again, like, if it is a result of tabloid coverage, I think we kind of have to ask ourselves, um, what is the national interest? Is it security? Uh, is it charity? Like, and the, I guess the funny thing about it, sort of coming back to the UK public's perception of aid, is that the national interest argument does not work. It's been tested and tested, I think, in four waves for the aid attitudes tracker. They've done four waves of, of qualitative research. Sorry, excuse me, quantitative research. And in each wave, um, the national interest argument plays almost in the bottom, you know, in terms of reasons why we should spend aid. The mutual interest is, is a little more popular. There's this idea that it's good for other people and it's good for the country as well. But aid in the national interest just does not work. But we still keep hearing it from politicians. And part of that, again, is this influence of tabloids saying that that's what's on the people's mind, even though it clearly isn't. So all of this in the case of Yegna, of course, kind of touches on um, the way that DFID is being influenced by media coverage. Um, what's, what is the role of DFID in either combating this or, or going along with it? What's, what is the role of DFID here? Yeah, DFID has had some really interesting um, uh, in center initiatives over the years to try and combat this. The most recent one is DFID in the News is their blog. Uh, that they use specifically to tackle uh, sort of tabloid claims. So basically, the tabloid runs a story uh, and DFID immediately goes onto the blog. They're very quick about it as well. It's usually within a few hours of publication. Go onto the blog and are able to pick out the specific areas, what's true, what's not true, what's been exaggerated, and offer the real figures. The problem is that this gets maybe like, you know, four readers or something. Like Nobody's really reading it. So the question is kind of, is that actually effective? It's good to have it out um, in the public discourse, uh, but my question to DFID was basically, what can you do to kind of elevate the profile of that? Is there an effort to change that? And they weren't able to really answer the question. Um, one of the other things that sort of keeps coming up, uh, a few years ago, DFID had something called the Development, um, I think it was the Development Education Fund. And it was, a, it was a, a fund basically just designed to educate the public about development and aid and what it is. And it was both in schools and then it was also both like in communities. Um, and I think they were usually part of like sort of uh, community centers, you would have like a, not just like a, a sort of poster board, but also people who would come in and sort of give talks and lectures uh, and do presentations based on aid and what aid was. The problem, I think, and the irony of it was that um, that fund was criticized for not being able to demonstrate impact and Im demonstrate value for money, which is again, DFID's sort of trademark, but also something that uh, the tabloids really sort of hold them to. So when they couldn't actually demonstrate that the fund uh, this education fund was demonstrating value for money, it ended up getting cut, which I think is a real shame. It's again one of those programs that requires a much longer term timeline in order to demonstrate results. Uh, so there have been some calls to reinstate that fund. Um, and I think with some sort of presentations we've seen recently, DFID uh, has, been, has been in the Midlands, for example, they were in Birmingham a couple of weeks ago, 
doing the same thing. They pitched a tent in the middle of Victoria Square and were just talking to people about aid and showing people like, how basically like rescue, uh, search and rescue works. Um, you saw sort of volunteer firemen and firewomen out there sort of talking to people about how they go overseas whenever there's a disaster um, just because they want to try and help. And that was also sort of a pop-up version, I guess, of, of the Development or Education Fund. Um, so it's yet to be seen, I think, if we'll be seeing more of those, but it's certainly true that DFID is getting more strategic about which populations they're, they're targeting. We're actually running out of time and we've barely touched the surface of this subject. So um, that's kind of one way um, that we might suggest um, the aid community might be able to, to tackle this better, what tools that they can use is to better engage the public. Um, what are the other, if you can give us a quick rundown of the other key messages you got when you were researching the story about how the aid community can tackle this? Definitely. I mean, there's small things that can be done in the crisis. And I think one of the hardest ones is actually being responsive and engaging with the public about mistakes. People are still really, really hesitant to actually talk about what's wrong. The other ones are, are literally just messaging issues. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned actually is, uh, we talked about the public interest, but also like times of austerity, people assume that in times of austerity, people aren't, aren't willing to give aid. It's actually not true. Apparently you're less likely to be for aid when economically your community is doing well. Which I thought was really unusual, but that was one of the findings. So I think part of it is not necessarily resigning yourself to sort of the old ways of doing things. The other one that I thought was really interesting was not necessarily using CEOs as the front um, the front um, representatives of a crisis or a campaign because people really can't relate to CEOs. You want to use people who are doctors or nurses, both uh, among sort of your local staff, I would say, in country, and also people who are working in headquarters, um, you know, in the UK. But I think using that mix and in incorporating that mix of beneficiaries as well, uh, I think would, would represent a, a more sort of complete story about aid you know i think people just need to see start to finish what aid does they see the problem they see a potential solution they see the risks and then they see the outcome and i think that's something that we haven't really put together as a narrative yet as a sector do you think these attacks from the media are likely to get better or worse i think they're gonna get worse i think and maybe i'm being pessimistic like this rise in populism that we're seeing and i'd love to hear your thoughts on mm. this actually just like the rise in sort of populist um, figures that we're seeing in this this kind of shoring up of national identity and this rejection of globalization, to me, also Brexit obviously could represent some of that, to me feels like a rejection of aid. Um, and I don't think necessarily that we've lined up those things in the aid sector yet, um, but it feels to me that it's only going to get worse. It does seem, um, we've been talking a lot about kind of the right-wing tabloids, those uh, particularly popular here, and they've also um, been kind of running these messages for a long time, but it does feel like um, anti-aid rhetoric is kind of extending beyond that now. So we've seen it from the Times, for example, the Telegraph. Um, there was the case of the BBC and its coverage of the Adam Smith international story. So um, it's definitely challenges ahead. What do you think of this idea, if we have time, like of the suggestion of charities like disengaging politically? Is that possible? I think like, they're so desperate as it is for funding. As you say, I think populism is such a key part of this. Um, and there is so much distrust in the political establishment now, uh, in elites generally. So I think it is really important for charities to disassociate themselves from that, especially because um, that's really damaging to kind of their goals and you know their, their end game um, to be seen as part of the elites. And it's not really what they're about. So I think it is really important to kind of make that distance clear. But it is very difficult because uh, working with politicians is and gaining support among politicians is so central to achieving their goals at the same time. So it's, it's a really difficult challenge. Absolutely, it's like a default, I yeah. think, as well. You know, it's almost reflexive, I think, in the charity sector to go to politicians and try to recruit because we associate them with 
the representatives of, of society, of communities, and technically they are supposed to be, but it seems like that's kind of changing. I think that's all we've got time for now. The first two uh, stories in the media series have already been published, so you can log on to DevX now to read them. Uh, and keep your eyes peeled for the final part of the series on what the aid community can do to tackle this, which is coming soon. <laughs>